Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For this episode of the podcast, I am so pleased to introduce Ray Ritchie, Senior Executive Vice President of Boston Properties. Ray has led the office here in Washington for Boston Properties since 1980, currently overseeing a portfolio of 44 office buildings totaling about 9.7 million square feet, and five build-a-suit projects currently under construction and or in the development process for Fannie Mae and Lidos in Reston, the Transportation Security Administration, and Wilmer Hale in the district, and the Marriott headquarters in Bethesda. We talk about his growing up as a traveling salesman's son, ending up in St. Louis, going to high school, then on to the Naval Academy, and talk about his military work for approximately five years after graduating. And then on to real estate brokerage with CV, one of the the original brokers in the office downtown in 1970, late 1970s. Soon later, joining Boston Properties three years later, bringing tenants to the first building in the marketplace. And so he's led and he was engaged by them at that time. He talks a lot about his philosophies about business relationships, including timeliness, preparation, courage, creative thinking and genuine sincerity, which he exudes with everyone I've ever seen him be with, including even his competition. There are several highlighted notes that I've shared in the show notes, as well as his bio and references to the people he's dealt with and been inspired by in his career on the website that I've attached as part of this. Without further ado, here is Ray Ritchie. Good morning, Ray. Thanks morning, for joining John. me Thank today you. on the podcast. Thank you, sir. Let's start out if you could ask, you could tell me your uh, your current role, what you're doing at Boston Properties, and a little bit about that and what your what your objectives are right now. Thanks. Well, first, John, thanks for um, this discussion between the two of us. I'm humbled by it. I'm not quite sure how I could uh, be uh, interesting and entertaining for an hour, but we'll give it a try. Again, thanks for this opportunity. You know, my current position is basically what it's been for the last 40 years is head cheerleader for Boston Properties. I focus on business development and leasing, not only just here in Washington, D.C., but I also take a similar leadership role with the leasing teams throughout the country with specific focus on the new market in Los Angeles we just entered. So I'm, I'm in charge of leasing business development, and general morale of the office. If I look forward to our new objectives, you know, we're always trying to find ways to satisfy the space needs of our our clients, both locally and nationally. We're seeking to enrich the built environment by building great new developments in uh, Washington, D.C., both downtown and in Reston. And we just like to leave our communities better after our involvement than where they were before. It's always what developers want to do, yep. it seems. Yeah. Not so much for making a buck, but just really 
me personally, is enriching the built, the built environment, the social fabric of our communities. So what I'd like to do eventually is get into that philosophical sure. discussion yep. vis-a-vis what, how the role of the developer has changed over the years, which I think could be an interesting, interesting That'd be great. Discussion. Uh, thank you. So let's, let's turn the clock back. Few years, sixty nine to be exact. <laughs> yeah, I, I was born in uh, Pennsylvania to a uh, young couple with their the epitome of the greatest generation. My dad uh, left high school early, lied about his age to a fight in World War II. My mom married him at twenty one. Shortly after his return, neither of them went to college, although we're incredibly smart and intuitive people. My dad became a salesman for U.S. Steel, selling large-scale steel projects to both the private and public sector. And we traveled from Pittsburgh to Cleveland to D.C. to St. Louis to Chicago, and then back to St. Louis is where I went to high school and uh, loved. I had the happy days, 1950s, 60s experience in high school that was just terrific. So the, the sales background that your father had. That yeah, somehow, somehow, <laughs> must be part of the DNA, but uh, uh, because my brother and my, my son are, are both good salesmen as well, and my daughter, who is in charge of uh, marketing for People Magazine, so I'm very proud of her. So that must run in the family someplace. So, so what, did, what, what, what did you learn from your dad that kind of gave you? You know, my dad was absolutely a character. He uh, had a wonderful personality. Everybody was his friend. My mom, similarly positive. She was singly. She never had a bad day. I never heard her say anything negative about anyone. And I would say I was so incredibly blessed to have two amazingly positive parents that in spite of the challenges they had in life, and there were many, always viewed themselves as being incredibly blessed. And that's a, a, a attribute that I try to carry with me every day. Were they disciplined people? They were, they were disciplined, but we always had a good time. I was one of three boys. My brother, Joe, is also in the business here, a very successful out in Reston. And I had a younger brother, David, who had some hearing loss, which provided interesting dynamics in the family. My parents sacrificed everything for their sons, and that is a, a tribute that we would not be anywhere near successful if it was not for having terrific parents. And I just am so blessed to have parents that really loved and cared for us and provided sufficient discipline that uh, carried us forward in life. So we're, we're very, very fortunate for that. Were you the oldest? I was the oldest, of course. You know, that's the, the family dynamics, but I was the oldest. I, um, interesting, in high school, uh, we didn't have a tremendous amount of financial resources. So we always worked two or three jobs, cutting grass or lifeguarding or things. But that really taught us. We didn't know we were, we were uh, poor, but we, we had such great richness and family experiences that um, really put it all in perspective. Also in high school, I went to a, a, a typical high school in the 1960s. It was like 3,000 kids, and it was a very large high school. In fact, my graduating class in high school was larger than my graduating class in Annapolis. It was in high school where I was playing sports, and we had this arch-rival high school. I mean, think, <laughs> think Maryland Duke or something along those right. lines. Right. And I kept on seeing this pretty cheerleader cheering for the other side. And three months before I left to go to Annapolis, I said to myself, I'll never see this girl again if I don't make a call. 
So that was my first and most successful cold call as a salesman. And I picked up the phone and called her. Uh, and that's been my wife of 48 years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So you met her in high school. Met her in high school. We, uh, we dated long distance all the way through Annapolis and got married nine days after we graduated at 21 years old, which is quite the opposite of what young people experience today. It doesn't always work for, for a lot of people. Uh, fortunately for me, it gave me, and we had a child shortly thereafter. So I was, I matured very early as an adult, kind of forced me to uh, grow up very, very quickly. So you entered Annapolis? What? 68. Oh, okay. Height of Vietnam. It was not, you know, right now, appropriately so, the military and specifically the service academies are viewed with great respect and very well respected by the, the public. That was not the case in, in 1968. I remember going into Georgetown with short hair and a uniform on and being, you know, just almost spit upon by the, uh, the community at large. So it was, it was a bonding experience where those of us who went to Annapolis in our class really bonded together. What was your motivation to go to Annapolis? Well, first and foremost, it was financial. You know, obviously, a full scholarship in Annapolis was, was key. But you know, most of my friends went to University of Missouri and, or Kansas or some of the great state schools. But that was just an extension of high school. And I wanted to go someplace where I got a terrific education and was allowed to uh, kind of invent myself, reinvent myself from high school. I didn't want to go to Kansas with another 150 of my high school classmates. So I went off to Annapolis and didn't know a single soul. And ironically, today, when many people go out and they'll do tours of five or six or 10 colleges before they make a choice, Annapolis, when I walked on the grounds of Annapolis, that was the first college campus I ever walked upon. Wow. Yeah. So, and of course, it's not like any other college <laughs> campus, <laughs> completely different. And, uh, you know, it's the 60s. So, my high school classmates were doing wild and crazy things, and I was, you know... Did you uh, look at West Point, too? No, I was always... In, you know, it's, I, was, uh, I watched an Army-Navy game in the mid-60s and was intrigued by Roger right, Staubach, right. and that was kind of, the, um, kind of the inspiration for me to go to Navy. And many years later, when Roger had his own brokerage firm, meeting him was kind of like full circle when wow. we worked on a deal together with the Staubach team. So that was a really wonderful experience for me. Did you tell him the first time you yes. seen a college campus was the Navy? Well, I told him the reason I went to Navy was because of him. Oh, and my goodness. Yeah, so that, really? was, that was a really wonderful experience. And uh, I have tremendous respect for him, not only as a, a great athlete, uh, but his military service, which he completed all five years. And then the discipline and accountability and integrity that he had at his brokerage firm really was an inspiration for me as well. So when did you meet him? I met him doing a deal with Greg O'Brien, who now helps run JOL. Gosh, you know, probably about 20, 25 years ago. We would interact at various industry events, but I would not say he's a friend, but I have tremendous respect for him personally. That's incredible. Yeah. So... How has the Naval Academy influenced your life in your own way and from your own perspective? The military and specifically Navy, it taught me a tremendous amount of applications to business. If you're on time, you're five minutes late as far as I'm concerned. So you have to respect our people's time. 
We have an expression, completed staff work. You have to do your homework before you go into a meeting. You have to do a tremendous amount of due diligence to make sure that you have the right solution. It taught us tremendous time management because when you're taking 18 hours of class a week and marching the parades and playing a sport and doing your homework, it really is a, a very much an organizing feature. And it, it really is important to me is the time management aspect of it. And also, at Annapolis, the vast majority of courses are not electives. I am not a technical person. Yet, I was forced to take electrical engineering and weapon systems and navigation and all these systems and analytical courses. And what that taught you is not do the things you like well, but do the things you don't like well. That you have to be equally inclined to do things that you find difficult to do or a, a challenge. It's better to do those well than do the stuff you like well. And I try to apply that to uh, all aspects of my business life today. How did you feel about it at the time, though? It was really hard because I, dated, I was dating this girl all the way through, right. through Annapolis. We were both very um, economically challenged, shall we say. So I would um, deliver, I would go out on Saturday nights, sign up orders for pizzas, <laughs> buy a, a hundred pizzas and sell pizzas by the slice and make really? a dollar a slice at Annapolis to earn the money to maybe fly my then girlfriend out to Annapolis for a long weekend. So it taught me entrepreneurial skills. And it was four years where it was very, very challenging. But I had wonderful experiences. I was picked my senior year to go to New Zealand on a foreign exchange program. So that was a really wonderful experience and taught me a little bit about dealing with other cultures and lives and different approaches towards things. So then active duty came. Active duty came. And one thing I found out on my senior cruise is I was very prone to be seasick. Which is a problem when you're in the Navy. Yes. At Annapolis, I did well academically, such that I was selected to go immediately to graduate school when I graduated. So at 21, I got married, packed up my car, and drove from St. Louis to Monterey, California. So the first year and a half of my military service was spent in Monterey. That's a nice place. Pretty nice duty station. Yes. And because I got my master's in business administration, because I did that, the Navy designated me for the business side, which uh, was great. I went to uh, Athens, Georgia to get my uh, advanced training in, in Navy business management. I then picked to go to Guam in the Pacific because it didn't go underway. It basically stayed one place. So I was at right. the supply depot there, spent two years there. And then because that was overseas duty, during Vietnam, I rotated back to the Pentagon and finished my last tour of duty at the Pentagon. So I spent five years of active duty and never set foot aboard a ship. Wow. So I achieved my objective of not getting seasick. That's impressive. Thank you. Well, it, um, I, I'm proud of my service. In retrospect, I, I probably should have spent some more time in the harm's way. But at the time, that seemed to be the best approach for me. Well, the Navy really wasn't quite as active in Vietnam as the other services, of course. Well, you, talk, you, you tell that to the guys who drive the swift boats up the river. Yeah, they would have a different approach, John. They, 
And of course, uh, the, the branch of the Navy that is the most impactful is the Marine Corps. Yeah, and I have tremendous respect for my m- Marine uh, classmates who went into Vietnam and served the country, some of whom never came back. So that is a, uh, a very sobering fact that I carry with me all the time. Some of your classmates. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's tough. Yeah. So then you were in the military until what? Before, before? I started looking in 76, early 77. I was, we, at that point in time, we had come back to D.C. We bought a, uh, I, we had two kids at the time. We bought a townhouse in Burke, Virginia. And I went by bus from Burke to Crystal City to finish up my tour of duty there. So when they talk about the renovation of uh, Crystal City, I have a completely different focus <laughs> of that from the mid-70s. I was getting out of the military. I was offered a job with Air Products and Chemicals in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It'd be sort of like going to work for Dunder Mifflin in the office. You know, it was a, a warehouse up in Allentown, and I really didn't feel very inspired to do that. So this is a life lesson I, I tell the young people when I talk to them about career counseling is that it's great to be lucky, but you can choose to make yourself lucky. So I took my resume, I took a day off, and I went out to Annapolis and met with the director of the Alumni Association and handed Captain Busick my resume and said, if anybody's looking for a Naval Academy graduate, have them please give me a call. About two days later, I got a call from an individual named Jim O'Brien who had gone out to see Captain Busick and said, we've had great luck with Colwell Banker and Academy graduates as brokers on the West Coast. Do you know anybody who may be going into commercial real estate? And I'm sure Captain Busick took my resume out of the trash can, (laughs) but at least I physically put it on his desk and Jim got it and gave me a call. And John, I knew the moment I walked in those offices, ironically, 2020 K Street, just down around the corner, I knew that's that's what I wanted to do. Jim offered me a job. He offered me- 1978. 77. 77. uh, Early 77. Jim offered me a job. He offered me $900 a month draw. I had a $600 a month house payment. I had a wife who didn't work. My father just passed away. I had no money. And I took the job. And another piece of advice I give to young people is, why, why the hell not? Mm-hmm. When you're that young and you don't have tremendous personal obligations, although I did, just go for it. You didn't and have debt, at least. I did, well, I, did, I got a mortgage on my house. Okay. That was a $600 a month house payment. All right. So long story short, we started, I took the bus in from Burke and sold real estate downtown without a car. And that first office at Colwell Banker was like a fraternity to me. And 42, 43 years later, the people in that office today are still some of my best friends. It was like a, it was, it was like a fraternity. And most of them had a business background. Most of them were sales. Right. Xerox. Xerox. Right. And, the, and the, right. you know the characters. Sure. And you know, even today, they represent some of our, our best friends. And in fact, we have the, the annual lunch coming up in a few weeks. Could you recite some of those names oh, for, of course. for the audience uh, here? Kyle. John Kyle. John Kyle. George Voris. Bill James. Steve Spencer. Hal Bowles. Cab Grayson. Nick Pappas. Bruce Basick. Vernon Narr. Vernon of course. Some other names have, have come and gone, but uh, it was a just, it was like the Wild West. And unlike today, where it was very much a national focus, and no one had heard a cult of a uh, tenant rep before. 
I would start off my pitch to a tenant by saying, I want you to know I don't work for any landlords. Well, the truth of the matter is I was so inexperienced, no landlord would hire me anyways. So I just started focusing on... Um, is that your first job? First job was tenant rep. And one thing I did, John, is you, I'm sure, remember back in the Washington Post, you used to have the Sunday classified ads, the help wanted ads. Of course. And there'd be 60 or 70 pages of help wanted. And so I said to myself, well, if they need people, they're going to need space to put those people in once they hire them. So I would clip all these ads and then wait two or three days and cold call the person in the ad saying, I understand you may not need space now, but I think you'll need some space in the future. Can I come and talk to you about how we can do that? And by taking away the negative, and I said, can I meet you in a week or two? Well, a week or two is eons. So I started off by doing the cold calling in the classifieds, and it led me to... Um, how did you keep track of everybody you talked to? Well, back then, we didn't have computers or internet so, so we just how did you do it i had a written log that basically you, logged down i you would still have that log no i i i've, I've made the conversion to electronic <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit easier to organize it was just a wonderful experience and then within uh, two or three years we were i was actually making some pretty good money i had three tenants that were interested in the area down by the capital and boston properties had just bought a development site down there one of my friends had the listing on the building and he subsequently got fired and I had these tenants lined up, so I started negotiating directly with Mort Zuckerman and Ed Lindy at Boston Properties to bring these three tenants. So we, I pre-leased about 60% of the building before they started construction. This is 1979? This is 79, exactly. They were intrigued after we closed the deal, so we started talking. And at first, I was a little put off by Mort's rather aggressive demeanor, but... He's a New Yorker. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And uh, we came to terms on a partnership, and I joined Boston Properties in 1980, coming up on our 40th anniversary. Tell me about Boston Properties at that moment. What were they at that time in Washington? Yeah, well, that no, we uh, in, in 1980, uh, Boston Properties was started in 1970 in Boston. Morton and Ed were spinoffs of the first national real estate development company called Cabot, Cabot and Forbes. They broke off in 70. They hung around Boston for seven or eight years doing relatively small suburban projects. They were exposed to a major development project here called Capital Gallery. They aligned with some local partners and were starting construction on that. And that's what brought me to bring so them. That was their first deal. On first the deal. And believe it or not, John, 40 years later, we still own that building today. Really? And we are still doing deals. One of the tenants, <laughs> one of the tenants I brought there 40 years ago, the USDA graduate school, had been there for 40 years and just renewed for another 15. Wow. Now, I didn't get paid on the renewal. I probably should have. But, <laughs> but and even, even uh, you know, the Farm Bureau, we still have, as Smithsonian, are still tenants in that building 40 years later that we put in when we first built the building in 1980. Yeah. So what was your role at Boston Properties when you first started? My f role as I first started was basically three of us. Uh, so it was Bob Burke, who uh, was in charge of the hard construction and development aspects of it. Gloria Braddon, who was our office manager, and I was the third, and I was in charge of business development and leasing. And both Gloria and Bob were older, and they would leave promptly about 4.30 in the afternoon. And of course, at Coldwell Banker, where I came from, at 4.30 in the afternoon, we're just getting started. Oh, sure. 
Yeah. We're going to Tammany Hall for drinks or we're, you know. <laughs> oh, and yeah. so I'd be sitting there oh, at 4.30 yeah. afternoon by myself and saying, what is this? Fortunately, in the, in the early 80s, you may not remember, but it was really a boom time. Oh, I know. And, I 85. Okay. So in, in, when we started in 1980, very quickly, we put together the U.S. News and World Report deal in the right. West End, which right. is now all the red brick buildings you see in the West End on 24th Street. We that did. was pretty much a build a suit for them, wasn't it? Was it was a build a suit for them. We did the, uh, the Park Hyde Hotel. We did two residential buildings. And we did a did you assemble that whole block there. You know, T shaped all of Twenty Fourth on the east right. side, mm-hmm. and all of N Street on the south side from Twenty Third to Twenty Fifth. Your friends at CB help you with that? I was helpful with CB, although the people who were most helpful was Steve Goldstein and who represented U.S. News and World Report. And after we put the deal together, the magazine decided to sell itself, and Mort came in and bought the magazine because right. he was the only one who understood both the publishing business and our real estate deal. So he then became owner of U.S. News and World Report, technically our partner, because we had a 50-50 joint venture with U.S. News. So Boston Properties owned half the project and Mort owned the other half personally. So what did you learn from Mort Zuckerman? Mort was singularly the smartest, the most wittiest person I ever met. He was incredibly sharp. He was also very, he did not suffer the fool. I learned from Mort that you need to be patient. You need to be prepared. You need to be thinking two or three moves ahead. It's interesting. His partner was Ed Lindy, who is the exact opposite of Mort. Uh, Mort didn't get married till he's 60 some odd. Ed was a family man like myself, got married right out of college. He was a calm, cool demeanor person. Mort was very uh, emotional and reactive. I like to think I'm a kind of a blend of both. I got a little bit of Mort and a little bit of Ed in me. <laughs> I think they were both great mentors going forward. And besides having a great set of parents and a, a great life partner, having Mort and Ed as my partners 40 years ago was uh, also another really terrific blessing that I was very fortunate to have. What did they see in you? I think they were intrigued by the fact you that... Western guy. Well, Midway, yeah. Well, you couldn't get two more <laughs> different groups than... That's right. Then Morton Ed, who are New York Jewish people, and I'm a Presbyterian from St. Louis, so right. it was a little bit. Uh, it was a yin and a yang. I think they they knew I was sincere, they knew I was loyal and committed, and that I was energetic. And they provided me the incentives to go out and be successful. And because they, one of the deals we worked out there, John, was I got a very low salary, but they offered me a small piece of every deal we did. And one piece of advice I give to young people is sooner or later, you need to earn money that's not on your W-2 because it's on the, if it's on the W-2, it's going to get taxed and you're going to spend it. If you're assembling wealth through partnerships or equity positions or even commissions that are paid out over time, that's an annuity. And I also tell people, and this is great advice to anyone in life, always live to the capacity of your worst year, not your best. Because uh, the industry, especially on the brokerage side, cyclical. cyclical, and we have people today who are still working, not because they want to, because they have to. Because early on, they expand their lifestyle right. to be required to be supported by an income stream that may be variable and not sustainable. 
What stimulated your thought process there? I mean, did you have a huge year and spend a lot of money and say, oops, maybe I shouldn't have done well, that? Or No, I had, I had a, uh, the last few years when I was at Coldwell Banker, I was only there three and a half years, but the last two years I was, uh, we were, it was late 70s. And I also want to highlight there was virtually no competition. Right. I, it wasn't that I was so good. It was, I was the only person doing what we were doing at the time. So I was sanguine enough to know that what I'm doing is as much about the circumstances as my own capacity. And I have never been that materialistically oriented. I always like to be part of a team. And so when Mort offered me a chance to help open the D.C. office of Boston Properties, and as we talked about earlier, I love seeing how we impact the social fabric and the built environment of the communities we're in. Even at that age. Even at that age. We saw what we did in the West End where we converted a bunch of parking lots and warehouses to a kind of a fun neighborhood. And like we did here at, at the building we're in, 2200 Penn, 10, 11 years ago when we came here, Foggy Bottom really was not much of a destination. And when we came in and added this, this project uh, and brought the Whole Foods and the retail and the, the apartments, I think uh, we filled a hole that was existing between the Central Business District, Georgetown. Georgetown, West End, and Foggy Bottom. We were kind of the nexus that pulled it all together. And we've gotten so many, we've been rewarded financially for it. But the intrinsic income we get by enriching the social fabric. And, you know, many, many years from now, people will drive by the buildings we have done. And they'll not know that it was done by Boston Properties. But they know it's a pretty cool building. And that is kind of a a very rewarding feeling that not only we at Boston Properties get, but I'm sure whether it's Chip, Ackridge, or Ali Carr, or any of the great developers in the city get that same level of satisfaction. Well, that's the difference between the real estate business and being in, the, in Wall Street on, and trading, yeah. trading stocks. I feel know. very sorry for our friends in the legal profession Oh yeah, that bust their tail documenting and preparing the necessary support documents to make our projects part of a success. And I hope they feel as we do that the fact that they provided the, the loan docs or that they Assisted, uh, assisted in the acquisition or the leasing or even the sale, that they contributed as much to the success of that project as those people away in the rebar. Well, they're part of your team. Yeah, they are part of our team. And let me speak something if I could about the people weighing the rebar. About 12 years ago, I got involved with a charity called the SED Center, which provides effectively free childcare to the working class and underprivileged Hispanic community. And we got involved with that because there is no element of the DC community that has contributed more to the success of the real estate industry and has received virtually nothing in return than the Hispanic community. They have no representation in the city. They have very few Hispanic partners in the projects. And so we got involved in that as a way to say to them, and I, when I say we, I mean many, many of us, Jim Clark specifically at Clark Construction, we felt that contributing to a small contribution to their well-being and the future of their children was a small way we say thank you for them to what they do to, uh, to us every day. Was that his us. idea or was that your idea? No, it was, <laughs> I was asked to help find a, um, help 
SED Center, which was run by a, a dear friend who is a Hispanic person, and she was about ready to lose the space. And long story short, we moved them from 4,000 square feet to a 22,000 square foot building in Petworth. And I went to Jim Clark, and if I was to list another impactful person, I, I often say to myself in the circumstances, what would Jim do in this specific situation? And I went to Jim and I said, Jim, it's great and admirable and it's fantastic that you have a building named after you at the University of Maryland and that you have a scholarship at GW. And you are, that's very magnanimous, but the real people we need to thank is your Hispanic workforce. Which is what percentage of his workforce? Oh, it's got to be uh, of, of, his, of his workforce and his subcontractors right. who work for him. It's got to be 90, 90%. 90%. It's got to be 90%. And Jim embraced it. And true to Jim Clark, I said, we want to call it Casa Clark. And he said, no. That's Jim. So it should have been Casa Rich. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> definitely not. No, no, but it, it, no, not at all. But uh, Jim is just, he has a, and in that generation, you know, I've seen basically three generations of, of developers. I saw the, the individual developers uh, of the 70s, you know, Mr. Clark in partnership Benders. with Mr. Carr, the Benders, Nick Antonelli. Yeah. Obviously, the Gould family, who was very close to us. Bob Smith. Bob Smith, of course, with Crystal City. Mm-hmm. And then we saw the kind of the smaller regional firms get started. Back then in the 70s, it was, you know, like, like Dr. Tauber doing it on a part-time right. basis, you know. And, yeah. uh, and, and they were like Nick was a, a, a car guy or the, the Winder family would be converting their parking lots into, into development sites. And then came the, the, the real estate professionals, the Ackridges and the um, Bob Gladstone and the, you know, the local homemade, more entrepreneurial uh, developers. We came in then. And then slowly but surely, you know, uh, subsequently in the 90s and early 2000s, when we survived the crash in 89 to 95, national guys came. we came in and national guys came in, but also the REITs came in. And so, while I consider myself, I had the benefit of having lived to through two or three different cycles. And the young people today, without the entrepreneurial drive that was prevalent in the, um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, now it's much more institutional than it was before. I am basically not a, a developer in the truest sense. I'm basically an employee of a, of a right. Fortune 500 company. So let me get into that for a minute, Ray, because at the time you left CB and went to Boston Properties, at that time it was a pretty entrepreneurial shop. Right? Yes, so seeing myself, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was it. And Mort knew that you were talented, so he wanted to bring you into deals because he knew that eventually, if you like this enough, you're going to go and do your own thing. So, well, you know, I, I will tell you that that was a career path. But I also say, you know, I love the team. I mean, one thing that I'm most proud of at Boston Properties is when we started the company here 40 years ago, we hired a lot of great young people that over the course of 40 years became great old people. And in the last two or three years, we have had 10 people that we hired over the last 25, 30 years retire. 
Not too many people stay with a company long enough to retire, certainly in the real estate business. No. But we are exceedingly proud of the longevity of the people who came. We, we like to I take pride in the fact that we provide them the financial rewards that enable them to stay and to create a net worth that allowed them to retire and not have to worry about you know, working, not because they want to, because they have to. Aside from the buildings and the impact we've had upon the communities, the friendships that I have developed both within Boston Properties and without is also a major highlight of uh, my, my career here at Boston Properties. I'd like to expand that also, John, to say that Washington, D.C. is unique in that my friends are some of my biggest competitors mm-hmm. and brokers that I compete against or for their clients on a daily basis. I go to other cities. Uh, I spend a lot of time in L.A. It's a chainsaw death match. You know, there's no friendship between the brokers and developers or the brokers and uh, the developers and the other developers. But, you know, if I'm going out and grabbing dinner, I'm going to do it with, with Mike Glossman or Bob Murphy or, gosh, my son is my biggest competitor. So it is, is a, it, Matt Kelly. It's just a wonderful collegial environment. And again, if I was to talk about the Goulds or Mr. Rick Clark or Mr. Carr, they kind of taught us that, you know, 30, 40 years ago. If Mark hadn't hired you and tried to do it himself here, how successful do you think he could have been? Without probably, your, prob- no, without probably, he, he, would have been, he would have been equally successful, I'm sure. You think so? I, I'm sure, but I'm sure glad he didn't try. I'm just glad, <laughs> I'm just glad it worked out that, uh, that I'm here at Boston Properties. Great. So I want to segue the conversation a little bit into office building trends mm-hmm. and what's going on in the marketplace and, yeah. what you're seeing, and some of the things that you've seen over the, the three cycles that you've been yeah. through, and maybe at least three cycles, what are the, in your mind, what's the biggest change in not just office building development, but mm. office building operations over the last few Well, know, it's interesting. Years? Yeah, it's interesting. Just on a micro level in D.C., when we first got started, 14th Street was like the Maginot Line. You just wouldn't go through it. I mean, it was 14th Street. You would not go east of 14th Street. and then. In the late 70s, early 80s, that was broken down and the floodgates opened east. And a lot, because that's where the big development sites were. And that's where, you know, Arnold Porter moved and Covington and Berlin and everybody moved east because these law firms were exploding. That's where you get the land to build the bigger sites. So we have this kind of market now. That has even gotten to the point now where areas like Noma and the ballpark and the Navy Yard, and the Wharf, and Union Market are now competing sites. When Williams and Conley decided to go to the Wharf, that said to us, okay, that's another whole different market that we have to be concerned about. The geographic dispersion of the office tenants has really been a major change. It's uh, the quality of the space now, and people are looking at buildings more from the inside out than the outside in. Mm-hmm. They want the space to be high ceilings and as much glass as possible and you know the efficiency of the floor plate. And lastly, and, and something we focus on is sustainability. Not only is it good for the ecosystem and our future generations, 
but a lot of the bigger tenants are basically saying, if you're not, we gold, we platinum, we're not even going to go to it. So that box has to be checked. The 1970s were, we were just scratching the surface of the information revolution. Yeah. I mean, well, I remember, just. I don't know if you remember when we had a fax machine. Yes. That was like. I remember when I got my first one. Yeah, uh, that was like <laughs> earth shaking. I'm sure the people listening to this are wondering what these old geezers are talking about. But we got the fax machine and that was revolutionary. Yes. Uh, then we got voicemail. That was also huge because we used to get the little pink slips up front when we walked in. What about your first mobile phone? My first mobile phone experience was when Mort picked me up in early 1980 and he had a, a cell phone with a battery pack that right. took up his entire back seat uh-huh. and he was driving talking on the phone and I said well this is really an amazing experience but yeah the technological advancements over the last 40 years are really something to behold. So Ray we talked a little bit about uh, information technology and its explosion over the last 40 years mm-hmm. In that realm, can you talk a little bit about more about that? I mean, one of the things that obviously has had huge impact is when we were at CB, I was a CB broker as yep. well. Mm-hmm. And so when we were there, we had database managers and they would call every building in town <laughs> oh. and dial it for dollars yeah, to find yeah. out the information. Yeah, it was. And you had, and it was all handwritten. It was nothing. It nothing was there's no so resource. It was, uh, again, uh, it's like the. The printing press was invented. It was just <laughs> something so incredibly uh, advancing because it was all about information back then. And you almost keep a listing to yourself, not mentioning there's 5,000 square feet at 1899L is available. And it was much more simpler. Uh, you would go to a meeting with a tenant and say, okay, here's the five choices. Right. Let's go walk and look at them. And if you don't do it, so it's, uh, now... Tenant knows as much as you do. And, and you know, it's interesting, John, when I, when I meet with a young person that wants to go into real estate because they think they're going to make a lot of money in, as a developer or as a broker, I said, you know, what's really interesting about the last five to 10 years in the real estate business is the people that have made the biggest impact and have made a tremendous amount of money is the disruptors to the real estate industry. Andy Forns at uh, CoStar, by bringing technology to the space management thing we just talked about, view the space. Mark Bisno, creating the Bisno phenomenon. I met him for breakfast, gosh, it was probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Right. He came to me with this concept of electronic newsletter that was focusing. I said, forget it, Mark, it's not going to work, you know. And so it's, it's interesting to see that when I tell a young person, is there some element of our business that you can disrupt or provide us a better service that's being provided today? Because we've got all the brokers we need. It's going to be a chainsaw death match for you to be a better broker. We've got all the developers we need. But can you find a niche and a service or a product in our industry that nobody is providing that you can provide better? That's uh, something you should consider before you go into a traditional real estate role. So I think disruption of the, of the information flow or the service providers is an element I would suggest young people consider. So you talked about the inside-out trend as opposed to outside-in. Mm-hmm. That's where the shared office aspect has occurred 
And the ideas from that are relatively new, some of the thought process there. The yeah, the interesting thing about, about shared offices, we're one of WeWork's larger landlords. Right. But let me tell you an experience. So we put WeWork into Metropolitan Square, the building where Old Ebbett is, right. at, at you know, 15th and F Streets. Right. And uh, we put them in 200,000 square feet of space. And they are now, let's say, 95% full. So they have done literally thousands of deals there. They have done thousands of deals in the building that we could never have done because of our floor plates right. and our de desire to make longer-term leases. So they leased 200,000 square feet at a very nice rent, not competitive with us whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They've created a nice buzz and energy in the building. They're shopping in our stores and eating in our restaurants. Right. And more importantly, they're the filter, John, that says if that three-person startup in WeWork makes it, and they want, to stay, they want to stay in Met Square, we'll lease them 5,000 square feet in the sixth floor. Mm -hmm. If they don't make it, they filtered it out. We didn't lose the money. Right. So we view, if, if what I'm worried about with WeWork is when they go and they take multiple commodity locations in the same submarket. Right. So the only way they will prevail is on price. A building like Met Square with the views of the White House central location amenity base, ability to grow. We feel very, very comfortable there. We would probably not do that in a more generic building in a submarket that doesn't have a raison d'etre, a reason to be in that location. So that's, that's our thoughts about it. And we do think that there clearly is a place for shared office facilities in the marketplace as long as it's uh, well-considered and not overdone. Now, hasn't Boston Property set up its own? Well, we have, we have something called BXP Flex, which are pre-built suites right. that are in the three to 5,000 square foot range. We still like to have term on those. We still like to do you know, three to five year terms. That product is much more about speed to market mm -hmm. than it is flexibility for the tenant. We want to have that tenant that says, I, I need space right away. I don't want to go through the build out. I don't want to spend $150 a square foot, right. but I'll make a two or three year commitment. Mm -hmm. This is not a month to month type of. So you're not doing licensing. These are leases. No, these are, these are leases with you know, reasonably good sized blocks of space. So the licensing business, you, you want to leave that to other people. Gosh, you know, it, you know it, the management of that is so intensive. It's, it's an operating company. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we're... It's like hotels. Yeah. We, it's, it is really not in our, in our sweet spot to do. And, you know, we, we feel that every, every building, every submarket has capacity for some of that use. It could be complementary to ours. Right. We just don't want it to be so prolific that it dilutes the ability for those people to make money. So the question is, and, and I'm sure you've analyzed this internally, what is the, of the office demand pie, what percentage of the market is, is that type of user today? I, th I think it could be, you know, 5 to 10%. Okay. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, if you look at the absorption, especially in downtown D.C. over the last three to five years, if it wasn't for co-working, we would be way negative on the annual absorption. It also has provided a vehicle to get people out of their garages and apartments and into a work environment. We also find that it creates a culture that is a very 
supportive of that type of entrepreneurial growth and gives a little bit of a positive buzz for our, for our buildings, for sure. It's worked out really well at uh, so that at changed Boston the Square. use of space, though, with the space that you have currently. Well, I think I think the there's both the structure of the takedown of the space, right? But there's also the space itself. Mm-hmm. We see you know much more collaborative areas. We see benching. We see undesignated collaborative areas that people come together. It's almost the marriage of a ho- approach to a hotel, right? And an office space together. Right. So we clearly have seen that, certainly in our more progressive tech users. So all the all the consultants, the ones that go out and travel, you know, they have a they have a laptop, they have a briefcase, they walk into their office, and they don't know where they're going to be sitting until that day. Yes. So well, that's true about a day to day employee. Right. I mean, most people are looking at some of the builder suits we're doing. People are planning on only two thirds of the workforce coming in on any one day. In fact, they're saying to a third of the workforce, stay home. Go find someplace else. Right. Whether it's home, Starbucks, the park, you're not coming in today. And that makes them extremely more efficient. I'm a little old school. I love coming into work every single day. I'm always worried about the expression out of sight, out of mind. I want people to know I'm, I'm there and I'm part of the team and working. And I would strongly encourage most people to, to adopt that philosophy with, as opposed to spending too much time out of the office. With technology today, though, you can literally be in people's faces 90, 24-7 if you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some people accuse me of that. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I love coming to work and being part of the team. Together. Understood. Yeah, yeah. Understood. I have a home office and I have a different perspective yeah. on it. I love the social interaction of our yes. business, I, whether it was at CB or here at Boston Properties. Right. I love, you know, talking about our daily thrills of victory and negative defeats and sharing successes and and talking about how we can overcome obstacles together. And that's probably the most important element of my time at Boston Properties is that Mm -hmm. shared experience. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about office demand. I mean, we talked a little bit about from a shared office perspective, but generally... Employment, you know, job growth in the Washington, right. D.C. area. Yeah. Well, I think we have a unique perspective on this, John, because we operate in five major markets, Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and D.C. You know, we have seen one of the great things about that strategy is, you know, there's peaks and valleys in every market so that, you know, Washington used to dominate when Boston was very soft and San Francisco went through a period of time and the tech collapsed where that was very challenged. Unfortunately, where we find ourselves today is in Washington, our core market, which is the government and the law firm on the upper end, are all in contraction mode. I don't think there's a major law firm that's taken more space than they're exiting in, boy, in the last five no or six years. To. Well, a lot of the dynamics we just talked about by, tenants, by uh, lawyers working at home. So when our core demand drivers are not growing and we see tech dominating Boston and San Francisco, especially Los Angeles now too, mm-hmm. with the explosion of media technology, New York, you know, people talk about Amazon moving out of Long Island. All they did was go to Manhattan, and take down a million and a half feet. We don't have that demand generator for the tech side here in downtown. Now we are seeing a tremendous amount of tech demand 
in the Dulles Corridor, which has been very healthy for our holdings in Reston. But until the D.C. DC region, specifically downtown, figures out a way to attract tech to the district, we're going to be, we're going to be challenged. Now, we hope that Amazon coming to National Landing, a.k.a. Crystal City, and the Virginia Tech Initiative in Alexandria as well, will be that, those demand drivers. But that will take a long time to materialize. Is it just the overlay of the federal government that's the, the challenge for tech companies? I mean, uh, no, well, to the contrary, John, uh, th- this is something I really don't understand. The number one demand driver for technological services in the world is federal the federal government. So when Walmart demands, demands everybody being in Bentonville to service the demand that Walmart has, why does not the federal government demand that tech be much more present in the nation's capital where all these headquarters are for the government services? And I think that's going to start to change. I think more and more we'll see, we see it now on the defense side, a lot of right. tech is moving into defense. Well, Northern Virginia has always benefited from this. Yeah, we, we are very much the beneficiary and we are in a really active time now out in the, the Dulles Corridor. It's been really kind of fun to see. But the D.C. government has got to get, I mean, with all due respect to Georgetown and GW, University of Maryland, they're not the rival of MIT and Harvard and Stanford, Stanford and Cal and uh, even UCLA in terms of driving tech demand. We're a wonderful place to live. We have tremendous, you know, it's, uh, JLL put out a heat map that shows the percentage of tech residents in each jurisdiction. And while the D.C. government has a lot of people with master's degrees and doctorates, they're in political science and sociology and anthropology and not really addressing what the tech community needs. So we do need a stronger tech demand driver here in the district for us to be on a par with the demand drivers we're seeing in the other major markets. So if you could bring in an MIT-like... Well, this is what Virginia Tech is going to try to do. Right. Virginia Tech is a fantastic institution. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have the street cred that some of the other ones do, but right. we're hopeful over time. And, and, you know, the great thing about, there's a book that people should read called The New Geography of Jobs. And what it talks about is when tech tenants come in and elevate the salary demands. So a tech tenant in Boston makes, let's say, twice what a person in Providence would probably earn or a secondary or tertiary market, right? But the blue collar person, the high school graduate makes three times. Why? Because if you're shopping in a, if you go into a restaurant and you're paying $15 for a ham sandwich in Providence, but you're paying $40 for that same ham sandwich in Washington, D.C., that server gets two or three times the, the painter, the car, the car mechanic. So it really lifts, the tech demand really lifts the quality of life for everyone in the community that they're in. That study should be made much more. Popular. Yeah, I, I, I strongly recommend reading that book. And candidly, that's why we focus on the five to six markets we're in. There's great elasticity in terms of what you're going to pay for rent, what you pay employees, uh, the quality of life. Young people want to be around other young people who have similar interests and backgrounds and, and capacities. So it, it really is important for us to continue to focus on 
driving tech demand, and not only in the city, but in the region. Let's switch a little bit to markets, particularly where you're most focused. And we talked yeah. a little bit about downtown Washington, yeah. but let's go into rest a little bit. Sure. And I know in the past, when you and I have talked, you have always had this prejudice against Tyson's Corner. So I want you to talk about <laughs> Well, you know, Tyson's, Tyson's I think it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> There's some debate. We've been criticized by the fact that we kind of dominate Reston Town Center. Which only started in 1990. Yeah, well, it's only been yeah, in existence even less than that. We, we came to, to Reston in 95, but Reston's really been in existence for, um, you know, the town center for, let's say, 25, 25, 30 years. Yeah. But we are able to control you drive down Route 7 in Tyson's, first of all, it was an expansion of a regional road network with no urban street grid. And tremendous credit has to be given to Bob Simon and the mobile land guys, and men and women who developed the plan back in the 70s and 80s to establish a street grid. The, the Jacobs books, I think, is The Life and Death of American Cities talking about how important the widths of the streets and the, and the, and the fact that you have uh, a regular street grid and how deep the blocks can be. And that was the basis by which we kind of developed the next phase, Rest in Town Center. And our ability to control the environment so that we bite the bullet and we put the Apple Store here, which benefits all the retail. And it's a walkable community. We have demonstrated that uh, the ability to create a live, work, play environment. Office is better because the retail is there. Retail is better because the office is there because now you get demand during the workday that you wouldn't get if you were in a more traditional uh, suburban office campus. The multifamily loves it because I mean, the, the young professional or the older empty nester can walk out their front door and have a full array of, of options available to them and within walking distance. With all due respect to Tyson's, and there's a lot of great projects there. Uh, you know, the Meridian's Borough just launched. It was just great. Which is a walkable. Walkable. And we'll see how it, uh, how it uh, stands together because you need some critical mass. The impact of driving down Route 7 to have disparate owners and uses that is not a walkable situation. We wish them the best. They've done a great job trying to make it work. And let's hope that fortunately in Northern Virginia, John, there's enough demand for everyone. It's not, again, we, we wish Tyson's well. It's, inter it's interesting to note, though, I will say that with the advent, it used to be called the Rosin-Boston Corridor because that was the one corridor where people can come and be in a suburban location and still have metro access to the Pentagon and Crystal City and downtown. Then it became the Rosin-Tyson's Corridor. And so when the Silver Line came out to Tyson's, you had the same capacity where you can be in a suburban environment and commute downtown. Tyson's had the advantage. That's also where a lot of the decision makers lived. So the decision maker didn't have to commute from Great Falls or Vienna or Reston all the way into Boston to get that environment. Well, next summer, it's going to be the Roslyn to Loudoun County yes. corridor. Right. So the person living in Loudoun County, the executive could live there, could go to his office space in Reston or Herndon or out in Ashburn and still provide his employees commuter access either for personal use or to the demand generators downtown. So it has been very positively impactful to the Tysons and uh, Reston and now Loudoun counties 
to the expense of, I think, the buildings in Roslyn and Boston, because now they're a little bit more difficult to get to for the decision maker and don't have the decided advantage of being able to uniquely be able to provide access to the Pentagon and downtown. So what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, the wave of the city's growth is westward to some extent. Well, it doesn't have to be. It could have been any metro line. You know, for decades, we've had a red line extension out uh, in Montgomery County. Right. But it's interesting, Montgomery County uh, is much more life science oriented. Always has been. Always has been. And that demands less space than, candidly, the death sciences. Of course. Which is the CIA, the Pentagon, NRO. And that also generates a workforce that is technologically focused, much more so than the doctor working at NIH is not as transferable to the tech community as the army general who ran NRO, who's getting out, who's now providing technological support to the CIA, NRO, and uh, all this, the cyber commands that are out there. Well, with all the biotechnical uh, explosion of knowledge over the last 20, 30 years and continuing you know, genetic research and all that, it seems to me that industry still has a long way to go. No, but here's, here's, but here's the problem with that, John. All you need for that are two sm- smart people in white coats with a test tube to generate that type of growth. Whereas the technological and the government support on the defense and intelligence side needs thousands of people to analyze data, right? And so for those of us who provide space, Security. Well, the demand for, like, Alexandria does the the lab work. A big lab building is 100,000 square feet, 200,000 square feet. We do buildings in the millions of square foot range, generating much more capital investment and uh, demand for space. So it's an interesting dynamic uh, between the two markets. It is. And you were, at one point, pretty heavily involved at Rock Spring Park. We, one of our first projects was in Rock Spring. We built that in 1983. We did a series of three-year leases with IBM, leased up 700,000 square feet. But what's interesting, when we became public in 1997, we were in Reston, and we owned the Tower Oaks Park, and we owned Washingtonian North, about the same amount of square footage. In the intervening 22 years in Reston, we built somewhere approaching three and a half million feet with rents in the $50 square foot range. In Maryland, we built two buildings, rents in the mid-30s, and have since sold out because we couldn't make it work. That shows you the demand characteristics of the two markets. Do you see it continuing in that, uh, that realm, or do you think it's going to transition a little bit over time? Well, I, for Maryland's sake, we are out of Maryland now with, except, with except the one building, Crystal City, I mean, uh, Chevy Chase. And I think Marriott's decision to move from you know, North Bethesda right. into downtown Bethesda demonstrates that that user wants the same amenity base to recruit, retain, and motivate the best and brightest employees. And that's not done in the Greenfield Suburban Park. That's done in an urban environment. So that doesn't bode well for you know, the North Bethesda and the Rockville markets. It is um, a very tough place to do business. But it's interesting. Northern Virginia 
as Loudoun County, which is, you could argue, is the similar type of a layout, but you have one thing there that is pretty interesting, and it's underground, and it's known as the Internet. <laughs> well, that, what's really, really interesting about, about Loudoun County is that all the supply of density in Loudoun County has been absorbed by data centers. So we're looking to see what is the next parcel of land that will become the next Reston Town Center, and we can't find one. Why? Because all the large parcels have been consumed by the data centers. So it's going to be, it's really going to tighten. Even the PUDs? I mean, the big PUDs that were out there back then. There's only one or two left. There's only one or two left. Really? There is... Um, Cascades. And well, Cascades is predominantly residential. There's not yeah. a lot of office space there. Right. Um, the the uh, Claude Moore Foundation owns their site, which is a great future site. GW Campus out there. GW Campus. Also, you, you have to be careful. It's off Route 7. Right. And I think more and more of the development will take place along the metro lines. And because commuting along Route 7 can be a challenge. So if you look out the, 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 uh, the corridor, the Silver Line, there's not a lot of great sites left. And that's why we feel that the um, scarcity of space inside the uh, Dulles Airport down the, the uh, toll road, I think we'll still be very strong. We feel very, very good about it. Because cause the, it's hard to replicate. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people say that their project's going to be just like Reston Town Center. What people fail to remember is the first three developers of Reston Town Center all went bankrupt because the cost of the infrastructure, the upfront infrastructure is so burdensome to carry. And you have to be able to go through two or three or four cycles of carrying that infrastructure before you have the critical mass. It's very tough to replicate a large-scale mixed-use project like that. It'll be interesting how national landing evolves. In that regard, but you do have the employment base right there. Yeah, no, we are, we want to say uh, congratulations to JBG. They did a phenomenal job for themselves in the uh, region by bringing in Amazon. I think it's going to be a tremendous success. They have some challenges with the existing product to convert that to um, use, but uh, if I had to put my money on any team, in the Washington, D.C. area, I would put my money on, on Matt Kelly and his team there. they got a tremendous organization, and uh, I think it's going to be very successful. I met Matt Kelly in about the second month he worked. Oh, really? Great. JBG Companies. Uh, and he was hired by Rob Stewart. Yeah, good group. You know, I go back to the, uh, the Don Brown, Joe Gildenhorn, and Ben Jacobs, the original right. JBGs back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, and they have a tremendous legacy here. Uh, Did you emulate them a little bit when you were first starting? No, not so much. We owned for the long haul. The original JBG team was uh, really buy and develop and and sell. They're attorneys. Yeah, yeah. well, that was (laughs) part of it. But I I really admire the the leadership there, and um, I am very content. I, I don't know if you know, John, my son works there with Matt, and I'm very content that for me to end my career being referred to as David Ritchie's father, that would be uh, the best uh, tribute I could possibly have. So you have five Build-A-Suit projects going on right now, yes, sir. if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe more, I don't know. No, five, five underway right now, yeah. And so where do you see you know, future opportunities for Boston Properties? That's our challenge, John, is filling the pipeline back up. We do have 
a second phase in Reston Town Center to be built where we can add another million and a half to two million feet right next to the Fannie Mae Campus Square building. So you have three and a half now. We have three and a half existing. We have another million and a half, two million in development right now. And then you have another million. Another million and a half to two on top of that. Yeah. We're going to have seven million feet. Seven to eight million feet in Reston in the next 10 years. Which is Um, over, what, two thirds of the market there? Well, you know, some of that's residential and hotel and multifamily, but it's. um, But I mean, the office space. But there's more coming. I mean, others, I mean, uh, our friends at Brookfield have a great site. JBG's building. JBG's got a, a great site. You know, our friends at Comstock did a great job at Reston Station. We've got other developers have other sites out there at the green, the Silver Line. So we, um, there's some constraints on future supply, but right now we're we're happy with where we are there. But we'd love to have another site downtown. One thing we're very fortunate is to have a great f- a number of friends in the business. And for instance, the the Marriott Build a Suit, we did not control that site. But we're asked by our good friends at the Bernstein organization to join forces there, and it could not be working out better. We just have not only a wonderful professional relationship with the Bernsteins, but a very close personal friendship, and that's what we aspire. Why did they bring you in? Just out of curiosity, I think I think we had a uh, we have a good relationship with Marriott. We have tremendous experience in corporate build of suits in the Washington D.C. area. We have uh, the knowledge of building contemporary office buildings. We have great relationships with the general contracting community to get the best possible. When we bid our jobs, we look not only for the best price and schedule, but the best people. And we always like to get the best teams when we we build a building. So you have five projects going on. How many different general contractors? Five different general contractors. Wow. Yes. We, We felt a responsibility to our tenant, our partner, and ourselves. To make sure we get the best price and the best team. And it just worked out. We have tremendous respect for all five. My personal and professional relationships with the Clark family and organization go back decades. Omni was the first general contractor we used at Capital Gallery back in the very late 70s. That was Hyman and then on to Omni and then Clark eventually. We have great friendships with all of them. We have, uh, I won't name names because I'm sure I'll leave somebody out, but we have great relationships with all the general contractors. And that applies not only to the base building, but the tenant work as well. Sure. Uh, you know, whether it's RAN or HIT or the other. Uh, what about architects? Same with the architects. Uh, Five we, different architects. Okay. Well, let's see. We have um, Gensler. We have two Genslers, a Shalom Baranis, a Duda Payne, and I'm forgetting the sec- the last one. But we, we do pick the best architect for the t- assignment at hand. And when people ask us, how do you get your business, being in the Boston Properties business, I always remind people, you, one way I can assure you get the business is when you bring us business. In other words, if you're an architect working with a client that needs sure. a building or a general contractor that needs a, a developer to help with a project, uh, that's one way I can assure you that you're going to get Boston Properties business. And uh, we're very grateful for those friendships that uh, had that as part of the, uh, at the process. Several years ago, we're talking back 2000, let's see, eight, seven, eight, I was with a development firm in Northern Virginia called Concord Eastridge. And we, sure. were, we had the opportunity because I knew Vernon Narr and, and Art Greenberg very well 
good friends, and I'd done business with Vernon. We did the, I did the Mandarin Hotel with him way back when. Mm. And so I found out that NPR was looking for a, a build-a-suit situation in Noma, and your friend Bruce Bashbasha found a site there. And so I got a chance. Vernon said, John, it's competitive. So so we spent like four days putting together a a proposal for a -a build-a-suit. And I knew it would be a very tough, tough effort. But when I heard that you had won it and how you'd done it, uh, I thought it was fascinating. So just so you know, Vernon and and, and Art did for my ULI mentor group, he did it, they did a full case study where we got this big map of Washington on how NPR looked for their site. Mm-hmm. And it was not just in downtown Washington, it was region-wide. They were looking at the highest location, mm-hmm. all these different factors to the project. So could you talk a little bit about that and how you were... Well, the NPR was a, was a really interesting dynamic. Candidly, showing my bias towards locations in the district, I thought the NPR site was a little bit north, a little bit east on the north side of Mass Ave. But our our friend, Mr. Narr and Mr. Greenberg convinced us to go after it. And so we aggressively pursued the acquisition of the building. And what we did was we agreed to buy the building, which gave them the proceeds to use as the equity to build their own building. Right. We agreed to develop their building for a modest fee, and then they leased it back. So we had basically a great site that we had effectively pre-leased to NPR, so there's no carry. Right. It was a carried land play. Mm-hmm. We controlled the timing of delivery of the building by building their building, so we got a nice fee on that. And fortunately for us, uh, we were able to convince our good friends at Arnold Porter that this was the right location for them, and it turned out to be great. So the day that Arnold Porter, the day that NPR moved out of the building and moved to the new building on North Capitol Street, we had a crane knocking down their old building so we can build the building for... So you had a lease with Arnold Porter. Arnold Porter for about 70% of the building. I do want to point out something I think that's, that is how we try to do business. And one piece of advice I give to all young people is you're always building your brand, always building your brand. And you, the way you treat people is really important. And on the NPR deal, the night before we're supposed to code on the NPR, we had the crash of 2008. October yeah. 2008. And we, and I'm sure that Art and Vernon were expecting a retrade. Yes. And we didn't. We closed for cash. And at that point in time, we didn't have uh, Arnold Porter lined up. So that type of street cred has played us well. And fortunately, we're a public company. We were, we were a private partnership. may have been a different discussion. Well, on the other side of the equation, so you know, because they talked about it in their case study, they had two or three choices to make. And they knew you. And they knew your company. And they said, we have to go with Boston Properties. Oh, we kind. just have to. This kind. Well, it worked out well for everyone. It was great, great opportunity in uh, driving by the building today. Again, no one will know the inside story about that project or the people involved. And many years from now, they'll be forgotten about who the developer was and even maybe the tenant. But by d- developing a great design and a good construction in that corner, we know we've enriched the social fabric of that neighborhood for, for many years to come. And that probably, John, is my biggest 
concern and pet peeve about the industry is when developers and architects and builders do not build to the quality commensurate with the importance that that site, that project has on the community. And unfortunately, those ill-conceived and poorly designed buildings will sit there as long as the best buildings in Washington. And that is a social responsibility that the development community should assume when they're looking at the development, not how much money we can make, but what is the, the really the impact on the community for the Have you ever called anyone out on that? I, I, I have buildings that I point out as being uh, those type. Don't ask me to name them. Of course, I, I won't. But there, yeah, there are buildings in Washington that play very prominent roles that uh, were not well executed. And to that, well, I am saddened. I look at 1960s and 70s construction in downtown Washington, and it left a lot yeah. to be desired. Yeah. And I got an inside track on that, and he was an earlier podcast guest of mine, and that's Steve Lusgarden at Blake Real Estate. Mm-hmm. And he told me that the entire philosophy of the company was a t- completely different philosophy about development than what people look at it today. Yeah. Well, Steve should be commended because the building he built now that's right. at, uh, at 21st and K is a really great building. It is. It really is. And Steve and the Blake are not alone in that. It was, uh, oh, sure. you know, I, I like to think our buildings stand the test of time, but I'm sure there's some that, that uh, lack for uh, today's relevance. But I guess the good news, John, is some of those buildings are coming down and we're starting That's right. fresh again. I mean, the building we're building at, at um, in fact, uh, the fifth builder suit I, I forgot to mention was uh, 21st and Penn, the building we're building for Wilmer Hale where we have uh, Pelly Clark Pelly, and we're knocking down an old 70s building that GW built mm-hmm. at 21st and Penn. So some of those buildings are getting recycled. That's great. Surely we got to be boring people to death at this point, John. No, so. no. No, this is really good, Ray. You have a, a Boston Properties may have the lowest cost of capital, perhaps, of any developer in, in Washington, arguably. Yeah, um, you think that gives you an added advantage in going after deals? Well, I'm not sure it's the lowest cost of capital, but we have multiple sources of capital. Right. We can sell stock. Uh, we can right. do secured debt. We can do unsecured debt. We can do cash. And so uh, I think my friends in the development, traditional development community, first they have to get the site. Then they have to design the project. Then they have to secure the tenant. And then they need to get the capital. And they have to get approvals. Well, we all have to get approvals. But they had the, the really difficult assignment of getting the capital necessary to either acquire the building or start the project. I am not burdened with that responsibility. I just call our CFO in Boston and uh, they give us the capital. And that gives us tremendous ability to aggressively pursue projects. And our leadership is still based on entrepreneurial value creation through development, as opposed to merely going out and buying buildings. When you buy a building, an existing building, the only thing that differentiates you from the competition is your tolerance to overpay. (laughs) When you're in the development community, it takes some skill. Well, you can operate a building better than other people, too. Well, we do have have the decided advantage of scale. Mm -hmm. For instance, in Reston now, we can operate... Because we have the critical mass and we bid landscaping or cleaning or even energy, 
we can operate our buildings at a 15 to 20% discount to what other buildings are operated on. And we do triple net deals that flows right to the bottom line of our tenants. Or a full service allows us to be a dollar or two more aggressive. So you can tell the tenant, hey, look at this. Well, not only that, but uh, they get open book exposure to where all the costs are. And that it really is a, a transparent process. So as you're interviewing people for your company, what do you look for? I look for the same characteristics that I look for in myself. Have they done their homework? Are they prepared? I hate it when I go into a, an interview or a, a career counseling session, and I'm the one that brings the pad of paper and the pencil and the, write the notes. And I tell people that whether what I'm saying is relevant to them or not, by showing the person the respect that you're writing down what they say, validates that you have some interest in what they're saying. And so I, I hate it when I have to tear off a sheet of paper and say, write this down or they are not aware of the projects we're underway. And I want to compliment you on the homework you did in advance of this podcast. You, you did your homework well, John. Thank you. But I look for that. I look for an attention. If they have their phone out, that's a turnoff. They don't need to follow up with a handwritten note, although that's nice. But if they follow up on the homework assignment I gave them, if they're respectful of our time and they show up on time, I can't tell you how many times I met a person for breakfast on a career counseling session and they show up 10 or 15 minutes late, and they say, I got caught in traffic. Like traffic is happening for the first time that day. And so I look for all the same characteristics and traits that I like to, to display when, when I'm meeting with a person. My guess is that you're, uh, you're I guess it's Master Sergeant or whatever you would call them <laughs> at Annapolis taught yeah, you that. Yeah, my, yeah we, uh, it's, it's respect, it's respect, it's common courtesy, it's, it's respect for the other person's time and, and, uh, and knowledge and everything else. So uh, that's kind of the hallmark of what we try to instill here at Boston Properties. So when someone comes in to meet you for the first time as a, you know, a job prospect, and they are prepared, but maybe not quite as much as you'd hope, would you give them an assignment? Oh, sure. Assuming that you would, you, well, what, would you I, what would you tell them? I, when I interview or talk or, or counsel anyone, whether they're 21 or 71, the first thing I said to them is, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And if they're in a uh, job transition mode, I tell them this is a full-time job. And when people say, well, I'm going to take two or three months off, I'm saying you're making a huge mistake. Because every day you, get, you lose your, your market your awareness, your edge. Gee, why did Johnny stay out six months? He must not have been that attractive to other candidates. So I'm very frank and direct when I meet with people and talk about both personal, professional career goals. That might make it hard for you to retire, Ray. <laughs> I'm having too much fun and I am, just, I am just so grateful to my coworkers who put up with me on a day-to-day -day basis. And so. so shifting to personal philosophy. Surely, John, we got to get in the end here soon, right? We're almost there. Okay. So how do you balance your family, your business, and giving back? Well, it's much easier now that I'm an empty nester, although my, my focus is now shifting to my grandchildren. I always have loved what I do. I always find that coming in on a Saturday or, and or a Sunday morning when I'm here by myself and I can plow through the emails or write the notes or read the documents associated with our philanthropic endeavors, 
I have a, a, a wife partner that has been a tremendous resource on the personal front. She's very tolerant of my passion and love of Boston properties in our industry. I have a, um, a great belief and faith that you know, giving back is important. And so I can honestly tell you, John, that I have never worked a day in my life that what I do is just so incredibly fun. And to do it with the people that are in our industry in general, but with Boston Properties today, I feel as close to the 30 and 40-year-old uh, young professionals that I'm working with as I did the original partner I had you know, 40 years ago. That's great. Thank you. So you spend you know, your weekends thinking about some of giving back ideas and things well, like that. Well, that, I mean, I, I, I won't emphasize, I could be better philanthropically. I have a, two or three passions. But I also believe that in Boston Properties, when we execute a development project, like, let's say, the RTC Next project, we're building a headquarters for Fannie Mae, we're building a new hotel, 1.1 million square feet of office space, a new hotel, and 600 apartment units. We're creating jobs for thousands of people. And that is, That's in a way, giving back. Absolutely. Because, you know, when I go there and I see hundreds of people working to support their family and educate their kids and enjoy life in Washington, D.C., we do get a great deal of pride uh, when we... And so with... with 3.1 million square feet of space under development right now, we're impacting thousands of people's lives for the better by giving them really terrific jobs. So that gives me a great deal of satisfaction. What you just said, Ray, is so important, not only for young people to hear, but I think for, unfortunately, that there's a, a negative view of the development community in, the, in, yeah. in our country. Yeah. And that, what you just did, I mean... It, it's, <laughs> well, we, we have... Certain former developers that uh, are not projecting our industry in the best possible light, the highest levels of our government right now. So it is hard for us to um, hear criticism, whether valid or not, when we do like to think that we leave our communities a better place uh, from many levels uh, when we execute a successful development. Very important. So important. So couple of more stories, if you can tell me. What were some of the biggest, what's the biggest success in your career and what was the biggest failure in your career? Well, I think, I think the biggest success is not one project, but building the Boston Properties brand and having an enterprise that has stood the test of time and working with a team. And the team, not only just Boston Properties employees, but the general contractors and brokers and uh, architects and city officials that have made our projects uh, successful and impactful. That to me is the, uh, is the biggest success that we have enjoyed is the enduring brand that we have created. Biggest disappointment, I really don't have many. Uh, we've lost our share of deals, believe me. This is a very competitive environment and a lot of great competitors that we have lost as many deals as we prevailed, prevailed upon, but God, to have lived a 40-some-odd-year career in this industry with our people, I have absolutely no regrets or do not even consider the ones that got away. And what's interesting, John, is some of the ones we didn't get, it really worked out better for us if we didn't. Mm -hmm. It opened up other opportunities or 
the deal was not as great for us as it had appeared to be. So I have, I have many successes, the most of which is the friendships I developed in the industry and absolutely no regrets looking back on my career. You've all answered this a few times, uh, but if your 25-year-old self were sitting here, what would you tell him? I would tell him the same thing I'd tell the 25-year-olds that are sitting across the table from me at Cafe Lombardi when we're having breakfast is that you're always building your brand, that your reputation is your most important asset, that you should be friends uh, with your coworkers, but also friends with your competitors. And when I do lose a deal, I write three notes. I write a note to the tenant thanking them for their consideration. I write a note to the broker congratulating him on the deal and hoping that we get the next one. And I write a note to my competitor congratulating him on the deal. So uh, that building the brand, building the relationships, probably the most important advice I could give myself as a 25-year-old today. And also realize that when I started off at 25, it was a completely different market. And that the 25-year-old starting out today is not as fortunate. It, it was sort of like being the first person to, you know, Sutter's Mill. You know, I mean, we were we were the the prospectors that hit gold, and ever since then, it's been a much more challenging environment. And I have tremendous respect for the young professionals carving out a uh, a profession in our industry today in Washington D.C. And I will also tell them it will fly by. Just seems like yesterday I was in the offices at. Uh, 2020K Street. Well, 2020K at, at, uh, at Coldwell Banker in 1015 15th Street with Boston Properties. That ship Ridge building. Sure. Yeah. So, if you could put a billboard on the Capitol Beltway with a message for millions um, to see, yeah. what would it say, Ray? I am the luckiest person in the world to have had a career in this industry in this community with the people who make up the industry that we are in. So just, just, I would, the words would just say grateful. Thank you, Ray. I really appreciate your thanks, time John. today. I'm sure the audience is going to really enjoy this. Oh, thanks. I hope thank so. You. I appreciate it. Oh, I want to thank them for their patience.